1: Jerry and Tracy Pauly and their dog Ninja.
2: Hey guys, welcome to episode 226 of Hillbilly Horror Stories. I'm Jerry. And I'm Tracy. We are glad to have you guys aboard. Aboard. (laughs) Aboard. It's been a fun week.
1: It has been a fun week.
2: And the holidays are coming up, so we got a mm. bunch of other stuff going. So now it's, it gets really
1: hectic. Oh, yeah. so It's fun, though, ain't it?
2: Yep, it is. First and foremost, we want to thank all of our military and civil servants all over the world, no matter which country you represent. Thank you guys for what you do.
1: Yes, we appreciate you guys so much. And we're thinking about you, knowing you're not here with your families and everything. Uh, but thank you for keeping us safe, and we love you guys and pray for you every night.
2: Tracy, as usual, we want to bring up the fact that it's extremely tough this time of year for people that are suffering, battling depression. And I used the term battling, and there's been a, a meme floating around, and we posted this already a couple of times, because that's what you do with depression. You don't suffer from it. You battle it. You battle it every day, and you try to kick its ass. Yep. And some days are harder than others, and sometimes you need extra help, and that's what we're here for. That's what the group's there for. We're here to help.
1: Yes, we are. We want you guys to please reach out to us, the group. Um, You know, if you just need to have somebody listen to you, we're here for you. And we'll do our best to guide you along the way and show you all our love because we do love you.
2: Yeah, it's definitely tougher through the holidays for a lot of people. So if you need that support, we're here and uh, so is the group. And if you'd rather talk to somebody that's a little more uh, of a stranger, then you can always call the Suicide Hotline, which is... 1-800-273-8255,
1: or you can text them at 741-741.
2: I know we always give out those numbers, which are strictly for the United States, which, you know, 85% of our listeners are in the United States, so it Mm -hmm. does apply. But if you're not, you know, within the, the United States, you know, we don't have everybody's number, unfortunately, but we do have access to everybody to come join the group and get some you know a little extra attention there if you need it
1: man do y'all ever get a lot of love shown your way anybody and everybody that comes to that group and we've said it a million times we're so very proud of you guys and just so happy that you're a part of our family we can't thank you enough
2: yeah and as usual this episode is brought to you by el yucateco hot sauce the number one habanero hot sauce in the united states number 10 out of all hot sauces it is the king of flavor, hashtag king of flavor. Oh, you could take on hot sauce.
1: It is. And guess what we had it on? You tell me. Uh, you should know you ate about 20,000 of them. <laughs> meatballs. <laughs> we had them in some meatballs. It, I never
2: thought I would put hot sauce on a meatball.
1: Man, it's so good. And but you it, know, there's a lot of, if you guys look up it up online, there is a lot of good recipes um, to use this sauce on. There's a lot of alcoholic beverages you can use this in i mean it just is never ending
2: yeah we handed out at the book signing we just did we mm-hmm. handed out some little booklets that had recipes and yeah stuff in it and it's
1: so good things
2: that you would never think of
1: i know and i mean use
2: the chipotle in there because the chipotle's got that smoky flavor mm-hmm. to it so and it's actually one of the it's the second least hot mm-hmm. out of all of them so even if you're not a hot sauce type person this is something that just adds a little flavor to it
1: a little zing to your zing-a-ling. A zing.
2: Now, you can get yours at most major grocers, such as Target or Walmart. And if they don't have it, go to com. And don't forget, if you use the promo code HILLBILLYHORROR, all one word, you'll get 10% off of anything in the store. That nice. That includes hot sauce. Nice. So,
1: all right, Tracy. All right, I got one thing to say. Yes. That daggone wind about blew my weave off today. <laughs> Like, seriously, all off of my head.
2: Well, you know everybody not listening had that bad wind.
1: Well, I think a lot of people had that dang bad wind. And I'm just saying, my hair put up a battle today, but...
2: As long as it didn't blow the blue dye off.
1: It did not, which I'm shocked. (laughs) It was windy mofo out there today. Mm. But anyway, go ahead.
2: That was fantastic to break into the story for. And as an extra special bonus, after we finish this story, we've got Jerry Hepburn coming on, and he's going to tell us about the Battle of Los Angeles. You guys are going to love that. But before we do that real quick, we had a special (laughs) listener that loved hearing Freddy last week, and they want Freddy to say something again. So let's see if we can get Freddy to say something. Mm. That's a good kitty.
1: That's a good kitty, Freddy. All right, on with the show. Mm -hmm. All right. That's my hair, you know.
2: You know, so we had the book signing yesterday, and Tiffany Boots came and sat with us for almost the entire three hours.
1: I know it was so nice. She
2: drove four and a half hours to get there. I
1: know, bless her heart. And
2: came by herself.
1: I know, is not she, she the said. bestest?
2: So, anyways, she had asked a question, and it was funny that she had asked it. She's she's like, "How do y'all keep coming up with so many stories? How do you come up with your stories?" And I was telling her that this week's story, oddly enough, was one of those funny stories on how it came about. The other day, I was listening to the radio, and they played the, uh, what is it, the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald from Gordon Lightfoot. And they played that because it's the 45th, this past week was the 45th anniversary of the sinking of the Edmund Fitzgerald. So as I'm listening to the song, I'm thinking there's got to be Some kind of ghost stories that's attached to the Edmund Fitzgerald.
1: Yeah, I'm sure there would be.
2: And so I started trying to look up stories that was based on it. And there wouldn't, wouldn't as many as I thought there'd be. But it sank in Lake Superior, and I did find a bunch of other, um, we'll say, mysterious ship sightings, ghost ships, ghost stories about ships that were all in the Lake Superior area. Hmm. And most of them, because Lake Superior is huge, it's, you know, thus the name, Superior. But most of these were like in the same little vicinity, which I thought so was
1: like a little ghost island. I guess of so. Ships.
2: So I thought that was pretty cool. So anyway, that's what I that's how we decided to do the story this week was basically because I heard a song on the radio and it made me think to look something up.
1: So what is the song again? How does it go?
2: I'm not going to sit here and sing for you. Well, it's, I want
1: to know what it is. Well, I'll
2: play it for you afterwards. Oh. You know the song. Trust me. It's a Gordon Lightfoot song. And he only had three hits.
1: Oh, that's true. So. Maybe I just know it and just didn't pay attention to the words. Yeah. Maybe. Probably not. Oh.
2: But most people out there will know the song. Okay. Anyways. That, that happened in 1975 is when it took place. Okay. All right. So these stories are going to be more like Flying Dutchman type stories, ghost ship sightings, and... Uh, the events that transpired after the sightings and that type of thing. So that's what we're looking at. Most consider the sightings of a ghost ship to be an omen. And uh, something bad's about to happen. It's usually not a good omen. It's usually a bad omen. So the first story tonight is based in the Lake Superior region. Actually, I say that, but all those stories are based in the Lake <laughs> Superior region. But when I started off and started writing this, uh, I, I was doing some research and I did not I hadn't completed all the research. So I thought it was going to be spread out but instead they just all ended up there so
1: you know i don't think that wind could have got through my hair today (laughs) here we go i'm sitting here feeling it's pretty stiff sorry go ahead are you done i'm done all right
2: august 1922 cape (laughs) all right let's try that again cape gargantua which is in ontario canada
1: that sounds so weird cape gargantua (laughs) Did you just make that up?
2: Yeah, that's what I did. I sat around and make up capes.
1: Cape Gargantua. <laughs> that is crazy.
2: It just means it's big, and it's um, in Lake Superior. I know. You.
1: I don't know. It just don't sound like it goes together.
2: We're not going to get through this show if you're going to question every, every oh, I'm sorry. part yeah. that I mentioned. I'm just
1: interested. Go ahead. Okay.
2: <laughs> so there was a big tugboat named the Reliance, and it was making its way down to a city called Salt-Saint-Marie. It's also in Ontario. So it was a very foggy kind of night, and the pilot and several others were up in the uh, pilot house, which is, you know, like the cockpit of mm-hmm. a plane, but it's a pilot house here. And they're up in there, and they see this other tugboat that's right off their bow. One of the men that were in the, in the um, pilot house, he asked, what in the hell is that guy doing? And the captain of the ship said, you know, um, not anything very smart. Uh-oh. So he kind of steered the boat away, make sure that they uh, avoided a collision. And about that time, the captain asked if anyone could see what the boat was, because most of these boats, you know, they have a name or something. Right, on. right. The captain that was actually with Booth Fisheries, by the name of John McPherson, he uh, he wasn't the captain of this boat, but he was along for the ride. Mm-hmm. He looks out and he, he can see the name on the boat. And he stood very silent for several seconds. His face white as a ghost. Finally, he said, "That was the Lampton."
1: Oh, you mean the one that's already ship or sunk? Yes. Did I blow it? Did I run it for you? Yeah, but that's okay. Oh.
2: Everyone knew the Lampton had sank in a terrible storm the spring before.
1: Oh gosh, well, so it wasn't that long ago. Now,
2: McPherson said, "I think we just saw a flying Dutchman." Because keep in mind. The Flying Dutchman was an actual ship that was off the Cape of Good Hope in uh, Africa. But all these ships after that were kind of, everybody would just refer to them as Flying Dutchman. Oh. So it's kind of like everybody calls some soft drinks a Coke, even if and, it's a Pepsi or whatever. Yeah. So everybody calls a ghost ship the Flying Dutchman. So hmm, interesting. So that's what they said. They think, hey, we, we just saw Flying Dutchman. But that's not the end of the story. On shore, at the same time, the Gargantuan Harbour lighthouse keeper's wife, Mrs. Charles Miran, she also saw the Lampton. She said that she had seen the Lampton many times, as it had made several pickups in the area as well as delivered supplies to various locations up and down the Ontario coastline. So she knew for a fact what it looked like. Mm-hmm. A visitor was also at the lighthouse, and he saw the ship with binoculars. So now you've got all the people that were on this tugboat, the lightkeeper's wife, and another visitor in the lighthouse that all saw and verified that this was the Lampton that had sank the spring before. But what we've learned about these ghost ships in the past is usually when you see it, it usually means sure death for somebody involved that saw it.
1: Oh no, the people that see it, it means death?
2: Yes. When you say a ghost ship, it usually means there's a bad storm or it's death or something. Something really bad.
1: Oh, no. And you can't unsee it.
2: No, you can't.
1: (laughs) So you're in trouble.
2: It's like, I can't unhear some of what you say.
1: (laughs) Oh. Well, you suck.
2: (laughs) So McPherson was reluctant to tell his wife about what he saw for obvious reasons. He didn't want to scare her. He also saw another ghost ship in October. So this one was in August. He saw another one in October. So he was gravely concerned about his future as he told these stories to his wife. In December, John McPherson was again on the Reliance, same ship that they saw the first one on. He was wrapping up the end-of-the-season business, so that's why he was on the ship. Before the trip, he mentioned to Miss Miron that he hated the fact that he even had to go on a trip, but he said that something seemed to be pulling him, and he must go. So making the same trip to Salt-Saint-Marie, The water got extremely rough. The boat was forced onto some rocks off of Lizard Island. So due to the heroic effort of the crew, everybody actually made it to the island safely. But they were all in danger of freezing to death without immediate help. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: Captain A.D. Williams, he chose six crewmen to get into a lifeboat and attempt to row to the mainland. They safely maneuvered 16 miles through treacherous waters To make it to a railway station where they sent a telegraph to Salt-Saint-Marie for help. So help was on the way. Okay. Two different tugboats responded and they headed toward the crew. On the island though, some of the 21 survivors felt that there was no possible way that the men in the first lifeboat were ever going to make it to shore because it was so rough and i mean they're basically having to paddle with oars
1: oh yeah yeah that'd be tough
2: so mcpherson and three others decided that they were going to get into another lifeboat and they were going to launch and they were going to try to make it you know themselves unfortunately the boat smashed in the surf killing all four of the men oh this fulfilled mcpherson's prophecy of seeing the ghost ship and something bad happening So he knew something was going to happen when he took the trip. That's why he didn't really go, but he felt like he needed to be there. And ironically, he gets killed trying to make it into another lifeboat when help was actually on the way, and they just assumed that it wasn't. If they'd have just been patient for probably another couple hours, they'd been fine. They
1: put that, yeah. Well, that's a shame.
2: Our next story involves Bertha Endress Rollo. Now she grew up at the Whitefish Point Lighthouse in Paradise, Michigan. Her grandfather, Captain Robert Clarkson, was the lighthouse keeper for several years there. Now, she vividly remembers that she had an event with a ghost ship that her and her grandfather experienced together. She said it was a warm, beautiful day. She remembers it like it was yesterday. The sky was clear. There was no breeze whatsoever. The water was extremely calm. She said her grandfather was going down to check the fog signal. And he told her, uh, Bertha, that that she could come with him if she wanted to. And Mm -hmm. Being a grandpa's little little girl, she wanted to come. As they get to the building that had the fog signal, they look out over the water, and they couldn't help but to notice how calm the water was. There was a mist that was rising up from the water, and she said it kind of made it look like cobwebs. Oh. I bet that would be kind of cool. Yeah. So Bertha looks to the west. She grabbed her grandfather's hand and said... Oh, look, isn't she beautiful? She said that her grandfather turned and took one look and turned white. She said she had never seen such a look of pure horror on anyone's face, let alone her grandfather. He made the sign of the cross and he said, The Flying Dutchman. Some poor sailor will rest on the bottom tonight.
1: Oh, my gosh.
2: Bertha described what she saw as the most beautiful sailing ship that she had ever seen. She said the the sails were uh being fully blown even though there was absolutely no wind whatsoever. So they watched as the ship disappeared in the distance. A few minutes later they looked back to the west. There was a pair of masts with red lights blinking a series of four flashes each.
1: What's that mean? I don't
2: know
1: Troubles ahead.
2: <laughs> So they also heard bells tinkling. There was a Coast Guardsman that was on watch just west of Whitefish, and he also saw the flashing lights. As a matter of fact, he called the lighthouse to ask what Captain Carlson thought of the light. They discussed what to do, but because none of the signals were a distress signal and that they had already stopped flashing, they decided to do nothing.
1: Mm
2: -hmm. Fog rolled in the area for the next two days. Captain Carlson was busy with the fog signal, as you can imagine. When the fog lifted... The Lake Superior Beach, from Little Lake to Whitefish, some 18 miles of shoreline, was covered in pulpwood. The water was also littered with the wood. It turns out that a Canadian lumber tugboat and two boats that it was towing sank suddenly, even though the seas were calm.
1: And their wood floated away?
2: Well, it's where the busted on the rocks and all that. And then... Oh. So it was the wood from the ships.
1: Oh, my gosh. So it was a
2: tugboat that was towing two boats, and they, they just all got smashed up on the rocks and all that, and that was what was floating was the remnants of the boat. Inspectors had a theory that the ship's load shifted on the deck, and the ship filled with water and sank so quickly that the crew didn't even have time to ring a warning bell.
1: I mean, wouldn't you secure something like that? Well,
2: I'm sure it could, but if the water was rough and it and it tossed your ship a little to the left or the right it might be a little hard to you know
1: that happened quick then
2: yeah Yeah, that's what it said so but the sailors it didn't matter what the inspector said the sailors that are in that area were more apt to believe that captain carlson's thought of seeing a ghost ship was a premonition of pending doom the sighting of the ghost ship the flashing red lights on the mast They saw and and in the ringing bells foretold the future as far as they were concerned. On this particular story, there is a life-saving station at a a Vermilion, which is just west of of, uh, Whitefish, where the most of this was coming up. They did record seeing a ghost ship as well there at that station. But for the record, it said that the three ships that were involved, the C.F. Curtis, which was the main tugboat, and the seldom. E. Marvin and the Ann M. Peterson, which were the two boats it was towing, sank in a bad storm. That's what they're saying. They said that it was actually on uh, Grand Moraes, Michigan, 40 miles away from Whitefish, and it just happened to wash up mm-hmm. on Whitefish. So they're saying where we're in Whitefish it might have been calm water, 40 miles away,
1: yeah.
2: it wouldn't calm water.
1: Mm-hmm. And
2: that's where it sank and it just, everything washed up that way, making it appear. Right. So that's amazing
1: how many people have seen this though. Oh yeah. That's, that's crazy.
2: So we're going to stick in the area. Obviously the most often sighted ghost ship in Lake Superior is the doomed still steamer by the name of Bannockburn. burn. B A N N O C K B U R N one word. Oh, it's one word. Oh, yeah. it just disappeared. November 20th, 1902 northwest of Keweenaw, Michigan, The whole crew, obviously, disappeared with it. So it was going from Port Arthur to Midland. Both of these places are in Ontario. And it had a huge cargo of grain. So the water was calm, but it was foggy. The Bannockburn passed a ship called the Algonquin. So they passed each other. One was going one way, one going the other. Mm -hmm. And that ship's captain, Captain James McNaw, saw the ship. He said that they were about 60 miles southeast of an island called Passage Island, and they were just north of Keweenaw Point. So he watches it for a bit. He said he turned around to do a little bit of navigational duties, and when he turned back around a very short time later, the ship was gone. Captain McNall thinks that maybe the boiler exploded, causing the ship to sink, but he felt like that they were close enough together that if the boiler would have exploded, they they would have heard it. That's what he was thinking. They eventually found some wreckage, but it wasn't very much, but it did include a life jacket from the ship. So even though the actual ship disappeared, that doesn't mean that in some form or other, the ship wouldn't be seen again.
1: Well, I was going to say, wouldn't they, if they known the ship was there and then it was just gone, did not anybody investigate, go down below the sea or whatever? They did, but
2: you got to realize the ocean is vast. I mean, and, and to... It's so deep in a lot of places, especially when you're out in the middle of the ocean. And, well, I mean, this isn't the ocean. It's Lake Superior, but it's same situation. I mean, it's pretty damn deep. You've seen when we went to Lake Erie.
1: Well, no, it just it, seems like that. <clears throat> I don't know. It just don't seem like it could fall to the bottom of the ocean that quick, well, I guess. The Canada, I guess There's, it does. A, there's
2: been ships sink in 10 minutes completely.
1: Well, true.
2: Numerous tales of sightings from the Burn have been told by seamen over the years. The ship appears as an ice-like apparition driving through the misty seas. That would be cool. Yeah, it would be very cool. Like I was saying earlier, there was a little bit of wreckage found, but it was so scattered that they really didn't know exactly where to look, and the sunken ship itself was never found.
1: That's crazy to me.
2: The loss of the ship and the crew of 22 sailors has been a mystery for almost 120 years. So maybe the real mystery is why so many sailors still see the ship even to this day. The good thing about the Bannockburn is there's the sightings of this ship don't really have the bad results like the other ghost ships. Uh, you don't have a like these are a little different in the fact that they're usually just foretelling some bad storms or bad weather, and it's not usually wrecks or shipwrecks of death There's nothing like that.
1: I know, but that almost seems worse to me.
2: What wouldn't you want to know there's a bad storm coming up?
1: No, I mean I'm not saying that. As far as the what are you talking about? How the people die?
2: No, it's saying it's saying that when they see the ship, it's just usually telling them there's bad weather coming.
1: No, and that's a good thing. But I'm, what I'm saying is, I think it's more sad that at least you know if they were in a like kind of some kind of fight or or something like that that they were all killed which is horrible but just to disappear oh I see into you. thin air and nobody that to me is bizarre i mean i don't know if you i, well, I
2: don't mean, just because they really disappeared don't mean they really disappeared in thin air something happened to them it just means that nobody knows what happened to them
1: but i think that's awful
2: i mean if you went hiking in yosemite national park and nobody ever found you you didn't really disappear something happened to you Either got ate by a bear or something, but I mean, you didn't literally disappear.
1: I I know. I guess it's just the not knowing exactly what happened would be. I don't know if that would be something I could get over. Yeah, they were on
2: the Bannock Burn, not the Star Trek Enterprise.
1: <laughs> well, true. <laughs> All
2: right. So it's one thing to see a ghost ship, but what about actually going on board a ghost ship? No.
1: Would you do that?
2: Oh no, no. But you said
1: no. Yeah.
2: Why well, wouldn't? Because, but in this case... You're usually brave. But in this case, he didn't know it was a ghost ship.
1: Oh, okay. Well.
2: So, that's what happened to a fisherman in 1940. He had anchored his boat, was doing a little fishing. This was up in uh, uh, Keweenaw Point. And he sees a boat that was in shambles that started kind of drifting close to his boat. Mm-hmm. It freaked him out a little bit because it's like, hey, you're really right close, close to my to boat. close my boat, yeah. So, he... Climbed on board the boat. That's how close it got to him. He climbed on board of the ship. He didn't see a crew, so he started yelling for somebody. And eventually he gets to the pilot house and he sees these two figures standing there that are just kind of looking at him. So he starts to go off. He's screaming at them, you know, and he's like, you know, what the hell, dude? You know, I'm yelling. I come on the boat. I'm yelling for somebody and and nobody even answers to me. Well, (laughs) that's when the captain did respond in a very deep guttural kind of tone and uh he said they didn't have to worry about that because uh the ship was the hudson and it sank in 1901 in this exact location this was in the 40s
1: okay how do you get on a ghost ship i mean like if he's looking at a ghost ship is it like looking at a real ship
2: in this case it was Because he didn't think it was a ghost ship. So I said he didn't realize it until he got on there. So then he talks to the captain. So then the captain said, after telling him that it was a ship to sink, the captain said that they suffer the same fate time and time again, and they were about to sink again.
1: Oh, my gosh. It's like, what's that stupid movie?
2: Groundhog Day. Groundhog Day, yeah. (laughs) Obviously, the fisherman freaked out. He jumped off the ship, got onto his own. And then he left all of his fishing nets and everything there and just headed home.
1: Oh, okay.
2: Yeah, he's like, I'm out of here. On the way, though, a storm blew out all of a sudden, and he almost wrecked his boat trying to get home because the storm was so bad.
1: Oh, I thought you meant he didn't even get on his boat. He got in his car and left or something or truck no, or whatever.
2: No. He, he, he was on his boat. So
1: he still had a storm... Come up, and then he thought he was gonna, he's gonna crash his boat.
2: Yeah. So, another story in the area this is also another fisherman story. He had an encounter with the ship, a haddock, and that ship had wrecked five years earlier on the rocks of the uh, Keweenaw on the storm of some uh, December 1927. He said he could clearly read the ship's name, so he hurriedly ch- changed course and uh, started heading back the way he came, and he barely made it to the dock when a huge storm blew up and the choppy seas were big enough where he said that had he not came back when he did,
1: he he could have
2: very well lost his life out there. Oh, my! So this was a a situation where he looked at it as a good omen. And last but not least, surely you didn't think we were going to do this entire episode because of the anniversary of the sinking of the Edmund Fitzgerald and not have an Edmund Fitzgerald story. But we do. So the Edmund Fitzgerald sank on November 10th, 1975. This is a pretty eerie story, and it's a little bit different. It's more about the strange hold that the Edmund Fitzgerald had on the life of Captain Jimmy Huball. Captain Huball was retired from the Coast Guard by the time he actually told his story. But here's what we got. He said he was the commander of the U.S. Coast Guard Cutter Woodrush. And he said he was on a storm-tossed 22-hour voyage from Duluth, Minnesota, to Eastern Lake Superior, which was the site of the crash. So Mm -hmm. this was when the crash happened, or the wreckage of the Edmund Fitzgerald, when it happened and sank, this is who they called to come out to the site. So he's going to the site to see what they can do a rescue mission. Hobart's crew and ship hovered over the wreckage for three days and four nights. They were frustrated because all they could pretty much do was look for wreckage and bodies. Within minutes of their arrival, a life ring and a light itself popped to the surface. You mean like a
1: life jacket? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah,
2: like Uh, the the ring thing. Yeah. Yeah. They floated up to the surface almost as soon as they got there. And that was the last things to ever come off the Edmund Fitzgerald.
1: Oh my gosh, that was it?
2: Hobart said that he could he could feel his futility and anger at why these 29 men had to die. Six months later, Hobart was back at that same site. His ship was base the base for like a a recovery mission and a recording mission. Mm -hmm. So the these crews were going down there and they were filming like the Titanic. Well they they yeah, they sent out like one of those submersible uh machines, unmanned unmanned machines that Mm -hmm. had a camera on it and was circling around and they were just recording every bit of it. He said the sea was very rough while they were there and a huge storm blew up the very first night and they were anchored as they were anchored over the wreckage. He said the wind blew so hard that the buoys that were out there marking their, their anchor ladder were pulled under and crushed by the pressure. What? That meant they would have had to have been at least 200 feet under the water to cause such an implosive force. So the next few days, as the crew guided the submersible around the wreckage, it was very quiet and eerie in the monitoring area. He said you had no clue what the cameras were going to show could be a dead body oh
1: man could be yeah. whatever
2: so they basically everybody just sat in silence as they watched the camera monitors mm-hmm.
1: the that's Exped- intense can mm-hmm. you imagine i said oh, that's yeah. intense oh, just I sitting there guarantee. waiting to see what you were gonna see
2: the expedition proved that this was actually the edmund fitzgerald so they confirmed that that was the wreck they found no bodies whatsoever mm. so as the expedition wrapped up Hobart assumed that his involvement with the Edmund Fitzgerald now was over, and he took over Captain and his ship for normal duties. But that would not be the case. Sometime later, Hobart was escorting three Canadian ships through the ice in Whitefish Bay. Later in the day, they got stuck in the ice about 10 miles from where the Fitzgerald sank. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: So when you get stuck in ice like that, and these ships do, they have to send... Another ship out, because that's what a cutter is, if you're unfamiliar. A cutter is a ship that goes through, and it's got a special device on the front of it, and it breaks the ice in the water so the ships can get through. Well, they got stuck anyway. It was him and his ship and two other Canadian ships, or three other Canadian ships. And they got stuck, so they had to radio for another cutter to come out, and they're just kind of stuck in the ice, so wherever the ice floats to, they just float along with it. They can't ever do anything about it.
1: Yeah, yeah.
2: And, uh... He said, so they just decided to, to kind of hunker down for the night and just wherever the ice took them, the ice took them. On his ship, he had this black Labrador retriever. And this dog had to run of the ship. Every crew member loved him, and the dog loved all the crew members. That night, though, the dog was noticeably uncomfortable. He would stay in one place most of the time instead of venturing throughout. Like I said, he had to run of the whole damn ship. Mm-hmm. And he would just stay in one place. He would stick around in a lot of, uh, like, corners, and kind of whimpered a little bit, and there were parts of the ship that he wouldn't go near at all. Hobal said he acted like that they were in a funeral home, as far as the dog. It just had that that feel to it. So Hobal was a superstitious sailor, and he wondered if the dog was sensing something that was, you know, out of the ordinary. When morning came, the answer became obvious. The ice had drifted them directly over the wreckage of the Edmund Fitzgerald.
1: Oh, my gosh. That's so creepy.
2: Many old-time sailors believe that if you see a black dog on the deck of a ship, that that's a bad omen.
1: Could be, yeah. Well,
2: but, I mean, if that's the, the case, why would anybody have a black dog on the deck of a ship? Why would you bring a black dog with you if most if, if sailors feel like that's a bad luck omen? So, but anyways.
1: Are, are they saying the ghost of the black dog?
2: No, they're saying, well, maybe so. It could be maybe if you see a ghost of a black dog. I don't know. But maybe because of this, the dog did have some type of spiritual intuition because they were right over top of the wreck where all these men died at. Yeah. Since he loved sailors, maybe he was uncomfortable because of the loss of the life of the Fitzgerald crew. So maybe that's what he was feeling. Hobart says that sailors have a special feeling for each other and a reverence for for each other's ships. But for him, the Edmund Fitzgerald just seemed to be a ship that would not leave him alone. He said there's not a day that goes by that he doesn't think about those poor 29 sailors that went down and lost their lives at the oh, wreck yeah. of the Edmund well, Fitzgerald. Oh, yeah, I'm
1: sure. That's really sad. So, mm. There we go. That was good stories, babe. I like
2: that one. Like I said, and it all became because I heard a song on the radio. (laughs) I wish we could play it, but we can't. Anyways, all right, we're going to take a really quick break from our sponsor, and then Tracy will be back to give our iTunes reviews and our Patreon supporters. And then we're going to have the awesome telling about the Battle of Los Angeles. You guys are going to like this. This was really fun. So it's something I wanted to know more about, and uh, Jerry does a great job of laying it out
1: for yes, us. Yes, he does.
2: All right, we're back. couple quick things. We had a chance, Seth Breedlove, who's been on the show uh, from uh, Small Town Monsters. I've been waiting on this one, and, and I said that when we had him on the show. The Mark of the Bell Witch is on Amazon Prime. Just got released. He let us have a little sample of it ahead of time. Well, not a sample. It was the whole show. And it was phenomenal. Mm-hmm. It's, it's some of his best work, without a doubt. I give it five stars out of five stars. Good. So it. go check it out on Amazon. You'll love it.
1: Yeah, the do it. The Mark of the Bell Witch. Mark of the Bell and Witch. And
2: thanks, Seth, for hooking us up. Yeah, thank you so it. much, You knew honey. I was looking forward to it. So. <laughs> Tracy, we had our book signing yesterday. It was
1: You know what? Fun. It, that was so fun. And Tiffany is just a beautiful soul. Like, I was so happy to have her sit with us, and we got to talk about a lot of stuff. And we had a few people come in for the book signings, which was awesome. It was just a really good, relaxing day, actually.
2: Yeah, it's funny. Just to show you how things go, there's a, a gentleman there who used to work for me. hmm And he used to listen to Hillbilly Horror Story forever, and he had no clue that was me.
1: I know. how That was funny. <laughs> that was totally funny. I know. That was cool, though. But, um, yeah, it was a fun time, and thank you guys for coming out. We appreciate it.
2: We've got a Christmas shirt that will be in the store a little bit in a couple of days. So mm-hmm. Probably Monday or Tuesday they'll get it put up. Pretty cool. I posted the design up on Facebook and Instagram, so if you haven't seen it yet, you can check it out. we got that. And then, uh, like I said, it is the season.
1: Yay! We have
2: our book is for sale on Amazon. If you want it personalized, you can go to our Facebook or our, our website and get it there, com, or you can go to Amazon and get it. And uh, there you go. We can get that going. You can get you some Christmas gifts going. Get all of it from uh, one place. Yep. Not Walmart. Yeah. com. Go ahead, buy <laughs> people's shirts and and you can get the books and all that. Tracy, what do we got? iTunes reviews, guys.
1: All right. We have Ness Vera, Grimsley Michaels, Mojo Lobster. Of course. Ghost Gunslinger, and I'm—I know I'm going to say this wrong, but it's Loi Har Gilawa, and I'm not sure. Now, I would like to address one other one that we had. Uh, it was I love HK. Now, I know that we had a review from them uh, not that too long ago, because I remember thinking, "Oh, they love HK," and it was a really nice review. Well, this time, it was not a nice review. <laughs>
2: <laughs> it really wasn't much of a view. Well, view at all.
1: no, it was a one star and it said, uh, what did it say?
2: Uh, I, thought, I would have thought you would have wrote it down. Oh, I'm sorry. It I, said something like really or something like that. It was that Ridiculous, was it ridiculous. Yeah, it said ridiculous and then Absolute. that was ridiculous was the heading and yeah. then it just said really. Yeah. Or that something said, like that. So. You.
1: <laughs> and then that, that's okay, but I just wanted to say that I really feel bad. What, whatever we did to upset you. I wish you could like maybe send us a personal message so because I don't I don't like that you don't like us. I mean it's okay, but I just really want to know what we did that upset you. That that's my main thing because I hate to upset people. Um, we always enjoy your alls reviews and there's gonna be bad ones, but I just didn't know how it went from a great review. Down to a one star. And
2: there was really no explanation. So, that, no. I mean, we can learn from some of these, but if you just put ridiculous and really, yeah. that really doesn't tell us yeah. what's ridiculous. So. so,
1: you know, you don't have to reach out. I, I hope you would, because, I, like I said, I hate to.
2: My guess is they're not listening anymore.
1: Well, they may not be, but just in case you are, I just. I hate that something we've done that's caused you to you know, turn, turn that around. So anyway, thank you guys for your reviews. They are so awesome. You guys are like the best. Yes, Seriously.
2: I'm going to keep saying this for a while. Cause it really helps out. If you've gotten the book already, please go to Amazon and leave a review. That helps tremendously for us on the book. So just go to amazon.com yeah. under the book and leave a and review. And there
1: have been some thank really you. awesome reviews. Yes. Thank you guys. Um, it means a lot to Jerry and it means a lot to me too, but you know, these reviews help us out a lot. To put our name out there. So if you guys can keep them coming, um, that's all we can ask. We appreciate and love y'all so much.
2: All right, let's listen to our story from Jerry uh, Hepburn. If this is a story you guys are unfamiliar with, I think you're going to be fascinated. And for all you people out there always asking us to do UFO stuff, here's one for you. Hey guys, I'm joined by a special guest today, uh, Jerry Halpern. Jerry, thanks for coming on, first of all. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. all right, so Jerry, the reason I've got you on, I've kind of toyed around with a while of covering the Battle of L.A. Some people are familiar with it, some people aren't. I'm just going to give you just a brief synopsis. And then, you know, I've got you on, obviously, to tell... What you think it went on here, because I thought you did a really good job, you and, and Johnny, on a Conspiracy Cafe. And if you guys haven't listened to the Conspiracy Cafe with Johnny Kuhn, check them out. That is a really fun show. Uh, you might want to allow three or four hours if you want to listen to it all at once. It's kind of a longer show, but it's a really fun, entertaining show. All right, so we're we're going to go back to December 7, 1941. Most people will recognize that as the attack on Pearl Harbor. That's what brought the United States into World War II. A couple of months later, off the coast of Santa Barbara in California, a, a Japanese sub on February 23rd kind of snook by without anybody really knowing that it was there, which I don't even know how that happens. And it kind of kind did like a little attack uh, towards the ground with missiles and stuff like that. Nobody really got hurt, but that kind of set the scene. So from my understanding, and, and you can definitely correct me if I'm wrong here, Jerry, along the way, But on February 24th, which was the next day, a lot of the military and and stuff were given orders basically to be on standby. So they thought something was going to happen. And later that night, they either think they see something or they did see something and they start basically firing their ammunitions all up and down the coastline and at at whatever it was they saw in the sky. Now, the official, from my understanding, once again, you can correct me on this, but from my understanding, the, the official's. Story afterwards says that, A, it was really nothing there. It was more of a, they thought they saw something, and once one fired, the other fired, it was mass hysteria, and it was nothing. But nobody really believed that. I don't think today anybody really believes that. And that's where all the conspiracy theories come in. Some people think that it was Japanese aircraft. Some people think that it was some kind of uh, paranormal phenomenon. But most people seem to think it was a UFO and was covered up, like all the other UFO conspiracies uh, back in the 40s with the United States. So, Jerry, I want you to tell me to the best of your knowledge, you've done a lot of research on this, what exactly happened on February 24th and 25th, back in 1942?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, like you said, they really didn't seem to know what it was, and and honestly, they still don't. The more they talk about it, the more their story starts to waver anyway, which, you know, never breeds confidence in the public. So the Battle of Los Angeles, uh, sometimes you'll hear it called the Great Los Angeles Air Raid, which air raid just really drives home the point of what happened that night. It's the name given to what you said was the, the, the rumored attack on the mainland United States uh, by Japan. And like you said, it was right after Pearl Harbor. So not only did we fear an attack on our mainland, because that doesn't happen often in our history, but we thought it was highly probable. So like you said, it started uh, the night of February 24th and it went into the early hours of February 25th, 1942. It was over Los Angeles, California. It was three months after the United States entered World War II, which was a direct response to the Japanese Navy's surprise attack on Pearl Harbor. The night before all of this happened, February 23rd, there was a submarine off the coast of LA. What they ended up doing, uh, let's go back a little bit. There had been submarines off the west coast for quite a while, and they were pretty much taunting us, which is why we felt there was a very imminent threat of an attack. If they could be there, they could attack with very little effort. On the night of February 23rd, they decided to finally bomb one of our sites. So they attacked Elwood Oil Field, it's right outside Santa Barbara. Now, the bombardment of Elwood was this naval attack by the Japanese submarine. Even though the damage was minimal, the event was pretty much key in triggering the west coast invasion scare. And ultimately, uh, it, it actually influenced the decision to intern Japanese-Americans, uh, but we'll get to that in a little bit. This was also the first shelling of any North American mainland sites during this conflict. Following the attack on Pearl Harbor, there were at least seven Japanese submarines that were constantly patrolling the West Coast, and they would take turns going to resupply, refuel, and then they would come back. They did sink two merchant ships over the course of their stay, and they damaged six more. And they actually got into two small skirmishes with the Navy while they were here. By the end of December, these submarines, they all went back to resupply. For some reason, it seems like they all left at once, which kind of threw us for a loop because we didn't really know if our guard should stand down or if they were coming back. They did return, and one of these was a, a submarine called I-17. It was a it was a very large submarine for its time. It was 365 and a half feet long. Its armament included six 20-inch Torpedo tubes and they carried 17 torpedoes on board. And then on the deck, it had a five and a half inch deck gun.
2: And I'd like to point out that five and a half inches is
0: average. Uh, it had 101 officers and enlisted men, and it was captained by Commander Kozo Nishino. At approximately 7 p.m. on February 23rd, The Japanese submarine came to a stop a few hundred feet offshore, and like I said, it started shelling the Elwood oil field. The crew, they were aiming for what we believe was the Richfield Aviation fuel tanks just beyond the beach, most likely to just cause, you know, as much damage as possible with minimal effort. Now, they opened fire, and the first rounds, they landed near the storage facility, but they were having a really hard time hitting it. They thought the place was abandoned, it seemed, but uh, there was a a skeleton crew that worked overnight. They thought there was an internal explosion. They thought they were having some kind of problem in the oil field. One man finally spotted the submarine in the distance. And the reason it's believed that they were constantly missing is the the water was really choppy that night. So submarines, you know, the torpedoes are usually shot from below the water and they they rise to the surface and go. But when they were shooting from the deck gun, the waves were what actually seemed to help them miss the target, which was lucky for us. So they're shooting at the tank and the, the night crew at the oil field calls the police and reports it. At the same time, one of the rounds actually passed over a place called Wheeler's Inn, whose owner also called the local sheriffs and reported it as well. Now, This is where the stories start to take a couple different paths and why some of the people question the official narrative. He called the police who had told him that the Air Force was already dispatching some planes and that they were on their way, but it turns out that none ever left the ground. And we'll we'll cover that in a little bit. There really wasn't too much damage done in the 20 minutes that they were firing. Uh, The estimates of the number of shells fired ranges from as few as 12 to as many as 25, but you're going to notice everything in this story has a pretty wide swing of facts. They didn't cause much damage, like I said, but their main goal was to breed fear on the West Coast, and they certainly did that because now this was as close to home as any attack is hit, short of Pearl Harbor. Damage was minimal. Like I said, it was only about $500 in property damage, which In 2019's conversion rates was about $7,800, and there was no injuries, so it it worked out as good as it could. But before I had mentioned that this attack led to the internment of some Japanese-Americans, and that's because a lot of people had claimed that after the firing, before the submarine had turned away, they saw signal lights, almost like a Morse code, but with the light, and it was pointed towards land. So the belief was that they were signaling people that were already here on land and the fear was that it was sympathizers with japan so i guess their next logical progression was that it was japanese americans working closely with them these claims ended up being proven ultimately baseless but at the time president roosevelt took the information he was given and the japanese americans were interned about a week later Now, Japanese submarines, they continue to conduct occasional attacks against our shipping vessels off the coast. So the threat really never went away, but there really wasn't too many more attacks on the mainland. They did attack a fort. On the Columbia River, uh, they they attacked a Canadian lighthouse on v- Vancouver Island, but it turns out it was an abandoned lighthouse. And there was two air raids launched from a submarine in an attempt to start forest fires in Oregon. So that was very interesting, too. Before researching this, I actually didn't know that there were planes that could be launched from submarines. But that's going to come into play later when we're trying to figure out what exactly we were shooting at during the Battle of Los Angeles. That was the night before. That was February 23rd. Now we're on February 24th, and this is when the Battle of Los Angeles starts. It's really important to note, like we were saying, there was already a lot of fears on the West Coast, so there was already some preventative measures in place. They were doing a lot of blackouts down the coast, uh, all the way up in Juneau, Alaska, Uh, The residents would cover their windows. There would be nightly blackouts because there was reports of submarines off the coast all the way up there as well. The submarines were still occasionally reported by people in the San Francisco Bay Area. So Oakland went as far as closing its schools. They also had blackouts. Seattle had blackouts. They weren't even allowed to drive vehicles at night because, you know, taillights, headlights, things like that. They closed down all the lights at the intersections. And there was actually reports of business owners who didn't want to comply and mobs would actually enter the store and they would either break the lights or just turn the lights off. So that even kind of parallels today with everything we have going on. All of these rumors were taken very seriously. So seriously, in fact, that 500 U.S. Army troops were actually moved into the Walt Disney Studios lot in Burbank, California. And their entire mission was actually to defend the famed Hollywood facility and the nearby factories from either internal sabotage or attacks. As the United States started to mobilize for this war on our own soil, anti-aircraft guns were installed, bunkers were built, and different air raid precautions were drilled into the population all along the coast. Contributing to this paranoia, though, was the fact that many American merchant ships were indeed attacked. So this wasn't rumor anymore, this was real. After the bombing of the oil field, they weren't taking any further chances. Okay, so the whole Battle of Los Angeles started because there were claimed sightings of enemy aircraft coming over the coast of Los Angeles, and they were first reported about 150 miles out. We had some time before they reached our coast. Now, they were picked up on radar, and initially the target of this aerial barrage was thought to be Japanese airplanes. But speaking at a press conference shortly afterwards, uh, the Secretary of the Navy, a man by the name of Frank Knox called the purported attack a false alarm. So immediately after this, you're going to see that there was a lot of discrepancy between everybody's version of the accounts. That evening on the 24th, there were reports of everything from flares in the sky to blinking lights, and they were all reported in the vicinity of these defense plants. An alert was called at 7.18 p.m., but was lifted again at 10:23 p.m., and everybody kind of relaxed just a little bit. They didn't let their guard down, but they thought that we were going to be okay and there was going to be no issue. Early the next morning, so we're now into February 25th. Radar picked up an unidentified target about 120 miles west of Los Angeles. Now the radar tracked the approaching target to within a few miles of the coast, and at 2:21 in the morning, uh, the regional controller ordered a blackout of the installation. At 2.25 a.m., air raid sirens were sounded throughout Los Angeles County and a total blackout was ordered. So not just the the military installation, but the entire Los Angeles County area went into a blackout. And the main reason behind this was you have to remember we're dealing with technology from the 40s. Uh, It's not like GPS today where you don't even have to see your target to hit it. So they turned the lights off and there was no landmarks for the Japanese aircraft to use if they were indeed there. You know, if you can't see the Golden Gate Bridge, you don't know which way you're going. If you can't find any of the landmarks, it's much harder to hit your target. All right, so at 2.43 a.m., planes were reported again near Long Beach, and a few minutes later, a coastal artillery colonel allegedly spotted 25 planes at 12,000 feet over Los Angeles, which was a very specific claim, Uh, and then he's going to later kind of flip-flop on his story. At 3.06 a.m., A balloon carrying a red flare was allegedly seen over Santa Monica, and four batteries of anti-aircraft artillery opened fire on it. And at that point, the Battle of Los Angeles, it's referred to as erupting like a volcano. Uh, At this point, any reports coming after this were just full of variations, and there was really no credibility to one over the other. At 3.16 a.m., the 37th Coast Artillery Brigade, Brigade, began firing 50 caliber machine guns. And these guns, to put them in perspective, they fired 12.8 pound anti-aircraft shells into the air. So over 1,400 of these shells were eventually fired. And just to give you a better sense of what this, this battle was like, 1,400 shells over the course of the, the battle was 24.3 shells fired every minute for 58 straight minutes which Damn. is one shell every 2.4 seconds. So it was pretty much nonstop the entire time. Now, pilots from the 4th Interceptor Command, like I mentioned before, they were alerted, but their aircraft remained grounded. Uh, the AAF kept its pursuit planes on the ground Allegedly, waiting indications of the scale and the direction of the attack before committing their, their, their limited fighter resources, which to a certain degree, it makes sense. Until you establish exactly what you're up against, you don't want to risk your planes if they're not going to be sufficient anyway. Now, the artillery fire continued sporadically until 4.14 a.m. Then it died down, but they were still on guard. The all-clear was sounded and the blackout order was lifted at 7.21 a.m., which was when the sun was coming up over Los Angeles anyway. So probably much of the confusion came from the fact that anti-aircraft shell bursts uh, were caught by the searchlights that they were using at the bases, and they themselves were mistaken for enemy planes. Uh, In any case, the next three hours produced some of the most imaginative reporting of the war. Uh, Everything from swarms of planes, or sometimes balloons, of all different sizes, uh, numbering from one one to several hundred, traveling at altitudes anywhere between a few thousand feet and more than 20,000 feet, Uh, reports of them flying at speeds that varied from very slow to over 200 miles an hour, and these were all observed allegedly and reported by people all throughout the coast. These mysterious forces, though, if these were the Japanese, they dropped no bombs, and despite the fact that 1,400 rounds of anti-aircraft ammunition were fired at them, they seem to have suffered no losses either, which is where the story starts to diverge into the UFO territory. Now, there were reports that four enemy planes were shot down, uh, allegedly one of them landing in the middle of a Hollywood intersection, but those reports were never substantiated and there was never any evidence of it. So again, it sounds like there was just a lot of false reports muddying the water and clouding up the story. But what I always come back to is if there was something there, the odds of not hitting it seem very slim. And we'll, we'll elaborate on this in a little bit, but also... They seemed to be there without doing anything, which would defeat the purpose of their mission. The shooting ended at dawn, but it it showed us that the only damage which resulted to the city was caused by the excitement. There was two deaths from heart attacks. There was three deaths caused by motor vehicle accidents due to driving with the lights off on blacked out streets and a lot of buildings. They sustained damage caused by the shell fragments because, you know, of course, everything that goes up must come down. Now, the story starts to lose a lot of its credibility with the government responses and the different... Uh, government agencies that were involved in this. Within hours of the end of the air raid, Secretary of the Navy Frank Knox held a press conference, and he said that the entire incident was a false alarm due to anxiety and what he referred to as war nerves. At the same conference, he admitted that the attacks were always possible and indicated that vital industries located along the coast ought to be moved inland. So I thought that was really interesting when he said that, too, because right after the incident, he's talking about moving industries And things like that. And through research, I later found out that they wanted to replace a lot of those industries with war industries, more defenses along the coast, which isn't a bad thing, obviously, especially at the time and the climate that they were in. But the biggest problem seems to be that Within hours of this event is when that agenda came up. Knox's comments were followed by statements from the Army a day later. General George C. Marshall said that the incident might have been caused by enemy agents using commercial airplanes in a psychological warfare campaign just to generate panic. But the Army also had a hard time making up its mind on the cause of the alert, so they kind of flip-flopped their story a lot, too. Now, in a report to Washington uh, made by the Western Defense Command right after the raid had ended, They indicated that the credibility of reports of an attack had begun to be shaken before the blackout was even lifted. This message predicted that developments would prove that uh, most previous reports were greatly exaggerated. And you tend to hear this a lot in any UFO story, but when you're comparing something in the sky against a dark night sky, everything from speed to size to location is much harder to get a good grasp on, which is probably why there were so many different stories. The 4th Air Force, they indicated it was their belief that there was no planes over Los Angeles. The Army didn't publish their initial conclusions. Instead, they actually waited until after a thorough examination of witnesses was finished, which out of all my research, they're the only people that seem to wait and do their due diligence interviewing people. On the basis of these hearings, local commanders altered their verdict and indicated a belief that from one to five unidentified airplanes had in fact been over Los Angeles, but then they couldn't elaborate on why nothing was shot down. Nothing was bombed or shot from the airplanes, anything like that. Secretary of the War Department? He advanced two theories to account for the mystery craft. Either they were commercial planes operated by an enemy from either secret fields in California or Mexico, or they were light planes launched from Japanese submarines. In either case, the enemy's purpose must have been to locate anti-aircraft defenses in the area, or deliver a blow at civilian morale. Now, this one makes the most sense to me. Not necessarily using civilian aircrafts from an airfield in California, because I feel like we would have known, and we probably would have even known if it was from Mexico. But we now know, looking back on it, that they had the ability to launch aircraft from their submarines, so that was very possible. And they did accomplish both of those goals. They delivered a blow to civilian morale. Everybody was losing their minds and just panicked waiting for the next attack. But perhaps more importantly, if their purpose was to locate anti-aircraft defenses in the area, They did it 100%. So the lights were out and they couldn't really see anything. But once we opened fire, we gave up our position. That is, in my opinion, the only plausible government-supplied explanation. But it's definitely the one that makes the most sense. The divergence of views between the the war and the Navy departments, combined with the unsatisfying conjectures advanced by the, the army to explain the entire event, that touched off vigorous public discussions. And the last thing you want is the public questioning your official narrative because that's when you know it goes in the realm of either conspiracy theories or, you know, UFOs or anything along those lines. There was a representative named Leland Ford from Santa Monica. He called for a congressional investigation on this whole event, saying that none of the explanations that were offered removed the episode from the category of complete mystification. This was either a practice raid, or a raid to throw a scare into two million local people, or a mistaken identity raid, or a raid to lay a political foundation to take away Southern California's war industries. It was great that this guy wanted to call for a congressional investigation, but he was even up in the air about what the reasoning behind it was. Attempts to arrive at an explanation of the incident quickly became as involved and convoluted and mysterious as the battle itself. A lot of the press outlets at the time, they suspected, expected a cover-up of the truth. There was an editorial in the Long Beach Independent, and they said there is a mysterious reticence about the whole affair, and it appeared that some sort of censorship was trying to halt discussion on the matter. So, you know, we always talk about that now with, you know, media censorship, social media censorship. That was going on back in the 40s, too, uh, at least as much as they believed. The Los Angeles Times, uh, on a front-page editorial on February 26th, They announced that the considerable public excitement and confusion caused by the alert, as well as its spectacular official accompaniments, meaning the stories that were being passed off as fact, demanded a careful explanation. So you're going to notice the trend that nobody really believed the official stories. The editorial suggested that the Army's theory that commercial planes might have caused the alert explains everything except where the planes came from, where the planes were going, and why no American planes were sent in pursuit of them. Now, the New York Times, so this stretched all the way to the East Coast, on February 28th, they expressed a belief that the more the incident was studied, the more incredible it became. If the batteries were firing on nothing at all, as Secretary Knox implies, it is a sign of expensive incompetence and jitters. Then they went on to say if the batteries were firing on real planes, some of them as low as 9,000 feet, as Secretary Stimson had declared, then why were they completely ineffective? Why did no American planes go up to engage them or even just to identify them? They went on to ask, what would have happened if this had been a real raid? Uh, Now, these questions were appropriate, but for the War Department to have answered them in full honesty and transparency would have kind of involved an even more complete revelation of the weakness of our air defenses. Because if this was uh, terrestrial-based, manned vehicles, that kind of attack we would have a whole lot of explanation to do on how our defenses failed so horribly. Now, if it wasn't something man-made, you know, something along the lines of a UFO, their stories would carry a lot more credibility to them as far as why we were in effect. At the end of the war, and this is one of the parts I found most interesting, the Japanese stated that they did not send planes over the area at the time of the alert, although submarine-launched aircrafts were subsequently used over Seattle. That sounds like a pretty simple statement, but the reason it carries so much weight with me is, They admitted to all the things they did, and then they said they had nothing to do with this. We're at war with each other. Why would you admit to most of that and then not admit to something that caused a great deal of panic in a country that you consider to be an enemy? I feel like it would have been such an easy thing to capitalize on and take credit for it if it truly was them. A careful study of the evidence suggests that meteorological balloons, and you all knew this was going to find its way into the story somehow, they were known to have been released over Los Angeles, may well have caused the initial alarm. In 1983, the U.S. Office of Air Force History concluded a study on all of the evidence and said that it pointed to these balloons being the cause. They went back with the weather balloon story that we've heard countless times, but what it doesn't explain is how there was no remnants of one shot down. It wasn't like Roswell where they paraded the balloon out for a photo op. There seems to be no tangible proof of it other than a study conducted 40-some-odd years later. And the thing, too, is a direct hit would obviously take it down. We would find it somewhere. But 1,400 rounds exploding means 1,400 times shrapnel were shot in 360-degree direction of the explosion. So for none of it to hit the balloon, it just, again, it's another potential explanation that just takes us further away from logic and the truth. After the firing started, observation of what was going on became really difficult, if not impossible. There was so much smoke drifting from the shell bursts. The acting commander of the Anti-Aircraft Artillery Brigade in the area testified that at first he was convinced that he had seen 15 planes in the air, but had quickly decided that he was seeing smoke. You can't have a further swing in what he thought was going on. He went from not only aircraft, but Specified that he thought he saw 15 of them. Two, wasn't really sure what he saw, and it might have just been smoke. But the reason that story doesn't really float with me too well is the smoke didn't start until they were firing, and they didn't start firing until they saw something. So it couldn't have been misidentified smoke. He had to have seen something tangible, whether it be planes or weather balloons or UFOs. Competent correspondents like there was a guy named Ernie Pyle. There was another one named Bill Henry. They witnessed the shooting and they wrote that they were never able to make out an airplane. They said that it's hard to see in any event what enemy purpose would have been served by an attack in which no bombs were dropped. Again, unless it was just that reconnaissance mission or trying to scare us. There's a very famous photo of this. Uh, In fact, it's really the only one. It was published in the Los Angeles Times on February 26, 1942. The photo, it's been featured all throughout UFO conspiracy theories as evidence of an extraterrestrial visitation. They assert that the photo clearly shows searchlights focused on an alien ship. However, it's important to know that the photo was heavily modified by photo retouching prior to being published. At this time, that was a routine practice. You gotta remember, it was black and white film, in a 1940s era camera. It was taken at night and then the photo was developed and printed in a black and white newspaper. It's really the recipe for disaster if you post the photo as is. The reason they heavily modify and retouch these photos is they need to adjust the contrast. They need to make the brights brighter and the darks darker. But the problem with doing that is once you start retouching it, you don't have an accurate depiction of what you saw. Or I should say you don't have as accurate a depiction of what you saw the original image shows what appears to be 13 spotlights now they're all converging on one spot the edited photo because they adjusted the contrast you can only see nine spotlight beams point of convergence in the original is really bright and that's just due to beams illuminating the smoke from all the rounds that were exploding within feet of this point the point of convergence in the retouched image due to these very strong contrast adjustments seems to show a solid object as opposed to smoke. However, due to the intensity of these spotlights, it's very possible and highly likely that the smoke, if in a large enough quantity, could look very solid. These beams were reaching this point of convergence from 360 degrees around it, and it appears as though a solid object is breaking the beam, when the reality of it could be that the smoke was greatly reducing the beam. Normally, you know, if it's going through smoke, the beam would be dimmer, but it would still travel on past that point. In the image, it looks like they all stop at the point of convergence, so that logical assumption would be that there's a solid object there blocking the light. It could be that the smoke was greatly reducing it, at the same time that the full-strength beam coming from the other side was simply overpowering it, so you wouldn't see the faded beam next to the full-strength beam. There do seem to be a few beams, though, that are at an angle you wouldn't expect, almost as if there was a solid object at this point, and it was reflecting the light in a different direction. It's really important to remember, though, that this photograph is just a millisecond frozen in time, and it can't really account for reflections off of either unexploded ordnance that was up in the air, or uh, the bright explosions themselves, or other beams that were just inadvertently illuminating lingering smoke. The original photo... Doesn't really seem to show anything. It's the retouched photo where that's where you start to get the hints of a UFO. But in my opinion, as much as I would like that to be a UFO... And I'm not saying that the event itself wasn't a UFO, but as much as I'd like it to, to be a UFO captured in the photo, the photo by itself isn't enough evidence for me based on what they used to catch it. Let me
2: ask you this. You obviously
0: don't think the picture
2: was uh, of a UFO, or at least not enough proof that that was a UFO. You know, I've constantly heard the the story of, this object sat there for like 45 or 50 minutes just being fired at, nothing happening, which leads most people to think UFO. But you don't believe that's really the case. So the question is, even if you don't believe the picture, do you think this is a UFO case at all? Or is this strictly just a Japanese attack or a threat of an attack, in your opinion?
0: So I think it's absolutely a UFO. I analyzed that picture from a, a, a different perspective than probably most people that just happen to see it. I had a uh, wedding and event photography business for a long time the ins and outs of what kind of editing and retouching needed to be done for that photo makes sense to me you know perhaps more than the typical person i don't think that's what we're seeing in that photo but that also doesn't mean it couldn't have been there there very well could have been a ufo sitting right there just obscured by the smoke what i think we see is smoke i think the event was a ufo for a couple reasons We'll start with the fact that nobody could get their story straight. Then we'll go into the fact that the story just kept changing, right? Like I mentioned before, what carries a lot of weight with me, believe it or not, is the Japanese saying, that wasn't us. The reason that carries so much weight is because they took credit for everything else. If you're off our coast to make us nervous, why in the world would you not take credit for something that made us freak out? That, to me, carries a lot of weight. The reason I think it was a UFO was for 58 minutes, we shot 1,400 rounds at some object that we had our spotlights trained on and didn't bring it down, yet it didn't do anything to us, right? So when you, when you start thinking about that, It didn't do anything to us, so it probably wasn't the Japanese, right? The enemy at the time. A lot of times we hear about UFOs just observing us, right? So that would lend credence to the fact that it didn't do anything to us. And then you talk about the fact that our artillery rounds had no effect on it. So I would start thinking something along the lines of, was it a force field? Was it a, you know, do they send down like a hologram scout? So it's not a tangible physical item. You know, anything along those lines, but nothing man-made would have survived those rounds. I definitely think it's a UFO. Personally, I don't think it was... Misidentified, you know, weather balloons or aircraft, because again, those are tangible man made items that we would have brought down. And I think all of these people were very highly trained. I mean, yeah, okay, it was the 1940s, so our military doesn't have the same technology and weapons that we have today. But they started tracking an object on radar like 150 miles off the coast and they followed it all the way to the coast. And things that aren't there don't appear on radar. So there was definitely something there. And yes, it's true that once the shooting started, uh, it was really hard to uh, see, identify anything. It was really hard to, you know, all have the same story. But that was once the shooting started. They had to have had at least a radar lock and probably a visual lock on some object before they started. Yes, once everything got smoky and there was war nerves and it was go time, I don't really expect a ton of accuracy in in stories, but the first person that pulled the first trigger and fired the first shot wasn't shooting at nothing, and he wasn't shooting at a weather balloon. The people on the ground, at the very least, I feel like they must have seen something. You hear these stories about a lot of
2: the UFO sightings being around military bases, like they're kind of observing, like the whole Rendlesham Forest deal you know, where it was kind of overseen over the, the military base and everything there. Is it possible there is some kind of a tie-in? Because it is a coincidence that this all happened the day after the Japanese were actually firing artillery on our shore. Is it a possibility that it was because of, because of the activity, the war-type activity, that maybe that's what the UFO was here checking out, was seeing what we have ammunition-wise?
0: Yeah, I absolutely think so. So many cases of UFO sightings are either around military bases or around military activity. I mean, I don't have the timeline right in front of me, so I'm probably going to get the dates confused. But wasn't it Roswell that was right around the time of us getting our atomic and then nuclear technology? So it almost seems like they're keeping tabs on what our abilities are. And almost like they're just observers unless we are at the point where we're going to really destroy something. And then, you know, don't forget this this war was ended with dropping uh, two atomic bombs. So, right. you know, again, again, they always seem to be present, like you said, around military bases. And, and also anytime there's some kind of conflict where there's either new weaponry or new technology where it's just more devastating than something we had prior.
2: Yeah, because you get a lot of these cases in New Mexico, and New Mexico is just such a vast, wide-open area. It's not as populated as, as a lot of states, especially for, the, for that vast area that they have. And that's where all this nuclear technology is being tested at. And and it just coincidentally, that's where you know Roswell was, and that's where the Aztec uh, situation was. And all of that's right there in that New Mexico area. I don't find that to be a coincidence.
0: Yeah, exactly. New Mexico is where our first atomic bomb was detonated. So, you know, it's not really much of a surprise that that's where Roswell happened,
2: you know. Well, Jerry, I appreciate you coming on and doing this. And, And, you know, for those of you listening, you're probably thinking, well, what podcast does he have? Oddly enough, you do not have a podcast at the moment, which will surprise a lot of people because you do an excellent job of storytelling and I oh, thought thank you I thought this story was well researched it laid everything out answered most of the questions without even having a question asked and that's very hard to do so I want to thank you for the, uh, the time and effort you put into it oh my pleasure thank you again for having me but you've been a guest a couple of times on uh, Conspiracy Cafe just had an episode come out what I think here in the last uh, three or four days what did you guys talk about on that one
0: Uh, We talked about Area 51. Of course. We're right right there. (laughs) And
2: and you've been on a a time or two before. You've talked about, like I said, the Battle of Los Angeles. What was the other one you did?
0: Uh, So the first one we did was the Jersey Devil because... Oh, that's right. That's right. It was Jersey Devil. Yeah. Yep, yep, we did the Jersey Devil, then the Battle of Los Angeles, and then we did Area 51. Awesome,
2: so, and the good news is, you know, you and I have talked about making this a couple times a month thing, having you come on, so I'm excited about that opportunity.
0: Oh, me too, thank you.
2: All right, brother, well, thanks for coming on, I greatly appreciate it, and uh, we'll be talking to you very soon. Great, thank you so much. A fascinating story, and we're going to be excited to have him back on for future episodes to tell us all about the UFO stuff that I don't like to cover.
1: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I know. Thank you, Jerry, for doing that. That was really amazing.
2: So, All right, guys. We will see you next week.
1: All right, guys. Y'all have a blessed week. Take care, and we love y'all.